Good morning, Northside. My name is Mike Palmer, for those of you who don't know me, and I am the pastoral intern. Um, I'm not the senior pastor, okay? Um, Just keep that in mind when you're talking about me later. Um, (laughs) This morning, we are going to be uh, taking a look at Genesis chapter 29, as uh, Mickey so helpfully read for us. Uh, Before we get started, I am going to read a small section because it is a long passage. I'm just going to read a small section just to get part of it back in front of our minds again. I'm going to read um, verses 21 through 30. So... Um, Turn there, please. Genesis chapter 29, verses 21 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed need you every hour. We need you now to bless your word and to, uh, to make it a blessing to us. Father, the good news is that as we bring our needs to you, you answer with, I am here to help. So Father, please, uh, we, we pray expecting you to, to bless this word this morning. Uh, send your Holy Spirit forward. Open up our eyes. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort those who need to be comforted. Let the balm of the gospel heal our wounds this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is it that drives you? What is it that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? If you were to ask maybe Michael Jordan this question, I would venture that uh, he would respond when he was in his prime. It would be to be the best. If you were to ask eight-time Mr. Olympia Ronnie Coleman uh, what what it is that drove him, he would answer with this, uh, the love of lifting heavy weights. Or if you were to ask Bernie Madoff what would be his driving, he, he might answer with money. Does money drive you? Um, the next question that, that kind of follows that, right, if we have ever been asked this question or thought about this question is, well, how badly do you want it? And behind that lies an even greater one. What are you willing to give up? What, what, are you, what is it going to cost you in order to achieve that which you desire? You see, for Michael Jordan, his desire to, to be the greatest to ever play the game, it cost him his friendships, it, it led him to actually humiliate others, not only on the court through his game, but also off the court. Uh, Mr. Olympia, Ronnie Coleman, his desire and delight in lifting heavy weights cost him his body. Ever since his retirement in 2007, he has had 13 major surgeries. 
And you know what? These have cost him his ability to walk without the assistance of crutches. And in fact, he lives actually in such an intense pain that he, he has to uh, consume the highest dose of oxycodone at least four times a day, so he says. And Bertie Madoff is not the first to have his desire after wealth cost him his life, right? Or in, uh, his freedom as his Ponzi scheme exploited others, uh, exploited the trust he had in, or others had in him and he was found out. But what about you? What is your desire costing you? Or what has your desire cost you? Has your pursuit after your desire left you with emotional and physical scars? Or, or has it caused others to endure or carry such, such scars? The story of Jacob is one that highlights the consequences of being driven by desire and seeking after it uh, regardless of the cost. You see, this passage comes immediately after uh, the Lord's gracious commitment of himself to Jacob to bless him, to, to give him the, the hope of covenant life with, with him. And, and Jacob still, even after this, shows that he has a long way to go, for his fear still controls his desires. However, the hope that this covenant promise brings is that Jacob will indeed be blessed by the Lord, and he will actually be transformed by the Lord's faithfulness to him as the Lord carries out his plan of redemption for all mankind. Therefore, the main idea of this passage is that the Lord's promise to bless his people does not always result in the fullness of life, uh, of, of a full life of ease, comfort, and riches here, but it does always result in an inward, tra- in an inward transformation, which is our deepest need. We will see this that uh, through first observing our need to bring all our fears and doubts to the Lord in prayer, and then through our need to trust in the Lord's providence. So, because uh, the Lord promises to satisfy our desires with good things, we must bring all our fears and doubts to Him in prayer. So often we think that sinful desires are actually uncontrolled desires. But I was having a conversation with a friend this week, and he, and he helped me see something. He, he pointed out to me that uh, that is not always the case. Not all of our desires are inherently wrong or evil, um, but all of our desires are controlled. And what they are controlled by either leads to sin or leads to sin because that is what informs our actions. And so there are two controlling factors in this regard. There is fear and doubt or faith and hope. And so the consequence of having our desires controlled by fear is actually central to the story of Jacob up to this point. Jacob's fear-controlled desire after wealth and blessing and his doubt that the Lord will not, uh, that he will not receive what the Lord has promised to him causes great relational damage and destruction in his life, leading him to be separated from his family. You see, rather than having compassion upon Esau, his brother, Jacob's pursuit after wealth and blessing caused him to exploit his brother's hunger by withholding food from him until Esau sells him his, uh, his, right as, uh, his inheritance as the firstborn. Rather than faithfully trusting the Lord's promise that he will reign supreme over Esau, uh, Jacob's fear-controlled desire leads him to dishonor his parents, both of his parents, by agreeing to his mother's plan to deceive his father and then um, using the Lord's name in vain as he lies to his father, right? And he, and he says um, that it is because of the Lord has blessed me that I've been able to bring you this game, wild game that you wanted so badly. 
This fear-controlled desire leads to deception and it sows seeds of destruction in the family as Esau vows to kill his brother Jacob before or after his father dies. And yet, it is to this very broken family that the Lord has committed himself to. And we saw last week, it is to this very broken, fear and doubt riddled Jacob that the Lord reveals himself to, commits himself to, and promises to bless. And you would think, right, that after Jacob has this encounter with the Lord, as we read last week, that that there would be this immediate change in Jacob. He would go from being this fear and doubt riddled man to a, a one who is strong in faith, right? But that's not how it works. The Lord doesn't promise immediate maturity. And that is good news for us Christians here, right? Because we have had our encounter with God as well. When he opened our eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ, when he he gave us the awesome covenant promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. And yet, we didn't immediately become mature men and women of faith. I don't know about you, but I am definitely not there yet. So this is good news to me. We should not be surprised then to witness Jacob still being controlled by his fears and doubts in this passage. And so as we look to this passage, what we see at the beginning is is Jacob arrives at a well in the east. And and there's actually uh, two important things that we are to immediately notice uh, that happens here. One is that in the Bible, the east almost always has a negative connotation. It often signals to the reader that something bad is going to happen. You see, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden in God's presence, but after they sinned and fell, they were removed from the Garden to the east. Therefore, east signals this moving away from the presence of God. And what is to be expected outside of the presence of God is destruction and chaos. The second thing we are to notice is that Jacob's mother was met also by a man at a well, and and this man led her to her husband Isaac. And so we read of that well encounter actually in Genesis 24. And what Moses is inviting us to do here is actually compare these two stories together. And and when we compare these two stories, what we see is that we have the results of a man who operates out of a fear and doubt controlled desire. And we have the results of one who, who operates out of faith and hope. The distinguishing mark between these two persons and these encounters is prayer. It's very clear if you look at these two uh, stories together. So in Genesis 24, as soon as Abraham's servant arrives at the well, he immediately prays to the Lord for guidance. And then he waits patiently for the Lord to respond. The servant, the servant shows his patience and trust uh, in the Lord by watching Rebekah's reaction to his request for water. In verse 21, the man, uh, it says, The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. You see, this man desires to serve his, servant, or his master Abraham well. And we see that this desire is one controlled by faith and hope. He, is, uh, he trusts Abraham's word that the Lord will guide his response or will guide his journey. And he expects the Lord to act on his behalf in answering his prayer. But we actually see the very opposite reaction in Jacob as he arrives at this well, also on a journey that is to end with him gaining a wife. You see, uh, the Lord promised to be with Jacob and he would guard him and guide him and be with him throughout this whole journey. But we have no record in this encounter of, of Jacob praying to the Lord. Instead, 
what we have is a man who is attempting to grab and grasp after the blessings of God in his own power, fearing that the Lord might not be as gracious as he says, doubting that he actually seeks, uh, that he's actually seeking his good at all times. And so how often do you find yourself in the same situation? Stuck between fear that God is not good like he says and doubt that he actually delights to do good to you? That he actually delights to see your good brought about? If the Lord is actually good to me, right, he would grant the desire that I have now. He wouldn't make me wait. I wouldn't have to deal with this pain of a broken relationship or the death of a loved one or or a wayward family member if the Lord actually delighted to bless me. I wouldn't have to fear whether or not I would, be, I would have the right job or enter into the right career field. These, these uh, ease and comfort would follow me all the days of my life, right? When struggling with these things, when struggling with these desires, how is it that you react? Do you tend to take matters into your own hands and try to grasp at these blessings? Or do, is your first initial knee-jerk reaction to pray and wait patiently? Confident that the Lord hears you, knows your needs, and delights to bless you. If you're like me, you probably try to reach after these things and do it yourself. Gird up your own own loins, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and say, you know what, I got this. I'll press on. That just shows the depth of our brokenness. And we see Jacob actually doing the same thing. He takes matters into his own hands. And you'd think he would have known something about prayer, right? I mean, prayer is central to the story of his parents' meeting. If you, if you read Genesis 24, you'll see it is recounted a couple times, the servant's prayer that he prayed. But we also know about prayer, right? And how often do we find ourselves actually running there first? How often do we find ourselves trusting that the Lord actually hears what we have to say? And so what we see is Jacob arriving at this well in search of a, of a wife. And, and as soon as he sees the beautiful Rachel, he acts immediately and puts on this mighty display of strength to get her attention. The way he displays this strength is by lifting this heavy stone that is over the mouth of the well. That, uh, we read of that in, in uh, verse 2 and 3, that um, in, it, the reason why this stone is so heavy um, it, or the stone is so heavy and it takes three shepherds to actually lift up this stone. Uh, Jacob is, is showing how strong he is. He's, he's attempting to woo his future wife, hopefully, right? Seeking to prove his worth in that way. But we also discover another problem. What is it that draws uh, Jacob to, to act in such a way? Well, it's his attraction and desire for Rachel, But if you read, all all that he has to go off of this is just her looks. His his desire seems to be driven purely by her physical appearance. It appears to be shallow. So he does, he acts in a way that reflects the same thing. He then shows his physical strength. He doesn't seek to know anything about her character as we saw in the story with Abraham's servant. Rather, he he just desires her for her body, it seems. And we will see how this fear and doubt, controlled desire for a beautiful wife will actually play itself out in, this, in the next section that we just read. But in the meantime, there is another character in the story we need to, to take a look at and see how his fear and doubt, controlled desire plays itself out. And that's Jacob's uncle Laban. You see, Laban, like Jacob, desires after wealth and blessing. I mean, who doesn't? But this 
fear that he will not receive this is this desire also drives him to uh, bring about a result of physical, uh, emotional and physical damage to his family, right? As, as Jacob, uh, as Laban exploits Jacob and then his daughters as well. You see, Laban appears to make a generous offer to Jacob by giving him the, the opportunity to name his wages, but, but commentators point out that this actually is not the case. You see, that should never have occurred between family members. Instead, Laban should have been seeking to serve Jacob. He should have uh, to, to given him aid in building up his own household, but instead, he seeks to use Jacob's strength to build up uh, his own wealth. And then he exploits his daughters, as we said, to keep using Jacob for the next 14 years. So Jacob's lack of prayer and his, uh, allows fear and doubt to control his desire leads him to miss Laban's foe hospitality. Laban's desire after fear and wealth destroys his family. But what are your fear and doubt controlled desires doing to you? Is your fear that love and intimacy will always remain far from you, leading you to seek after pornography or or other forms of sexual immorality? How about your desire after wealth and blessing? How is that affecting your family? How is that affecting your friendships? Are you afraid the Lord will not be good to you? So you try to grasp after these things, uh, careless uh, regarding the cost that it has on your family or your friends. Or what about your desire for the perfect family? How is that affecting your life? And another desire that we face that is easily controlled by fear is the desire to be in the right. I mean, if we are wrong, we, we have kind of informed in us that, that we, feel, uh, we tend to feel worthless. And so we must prove that we are right in order to have worth in, the other, in other people's eyes. And, and for us in this country, in America, the desire um, it, uh, to be right is often linked to our political ideologies. But you see, self-justification always leaves us blinded. And so I ask this question because this uh, coming up that because I have been personally wrestling with this question for for the past three years and it and it drives to uh, and it is very convicting. But is your fear of being wrong hindering you from hearing the cries of racial injustice and keeping you from weeping and mourning alongside our black brothers and sisters who have who have struggled and long suffered the effects of two hundred and fifty years of chattel slavery? suffered from separate but equal segregation and and having to fight for civil rights just to be considered human? Is your fear and doubt controlled desire leading you to first write that post on, on Facebook or Instagram or social media rather than actually first seeking the Lord in prayer and asking him to lead you in, in, in the truth and to reveal it to your hearts? And you who fear that justice won't come, again, is your desire for justice leading you to take matters into your own hands? Or are you you first seeking the Lord and asking him to lead you in the way to promote justice, to show the goodness of the Lord our God? Because again, after all, the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he is the king of the universe. He is seated on the throne, which is established in righteousness and justice. He cares about these things. But what about your desire for security? We all struggle with that too, right? Is that tying you to more of a political party or a political candidate than anchoring you actually to the Lord God Almighty? 
Would you be able to still praise the Lord if America somehow, some way, fell to communism, but the church flourished in the process? Um, again, I'm not advocating for that to happen, but we need to really see how our sin and how our desires cause division. Break us up rather than bringing, breeding, rather than bringing unity as the Lord Jesus promises he brings, for, for all things are going to be united under him. And the good news, the good news of this is that the Lord Jesus has opened up for us access to the Lord God. He has accomplished, uh, his accomplished redemption allows us to bring these fears and these doubts to the Lord God Almighty, the truly benevolent King of the universe. It is through prayer. And prayer is this wonderful gift that we all too easily neglect and overlook, right? We forget that in prayer the Lord actually ministers to us. And when we pray, we are experiencing the work of the triune God. You see, it is the Holy Spirit graciously given to us who leads us to prayer, gives us the words to pray, and makes our prayers understandable to the Father. It is Jesus who brings our prayers to the Father and prays alongside us. And it is our union with Christ that allows us to stand in God's presence, holy and blameless. It is the Father, listen, who bends his ear down to listen, to hear what it is that we have to say. Even though he already knows everything that we need, yet he treats us with dignity and hears and listens to us. So bringing our fears and doubts to the Lord, it must be a regular practice because there we commune with the triune God. And this is a gift only given to us Christians. John Calvin said that it is, the benefit, it is by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us in heaven with our Heavenly Father. And, and he also says we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out to us in the Lord's Gospel. It takes work. Digging up treasure isn't easy, right? But there is a promise there. There's treasure waiting. There's gifts waiting there for us because the Lord delights to bless us. And he actually spells out these blessings to us in Psalm 103, 1 to 5. So I would encourage you guys, if, if you don't have that ver- those verses memorized, go and memorize them. It's a great way for us to, to remind us what is given to us by the Lord. And all of these promises, we actually have the right to ask from the Lord in prayer, or else he would not have given them to us. So prayer must be central to our lives. But what do we do when we find ourselves faced with puzzling, with the puzzling providences of God. Because the Lord promises to satisfy our desires with good things, we must trust in his providence even when it's puzzling. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a helpful definition of God's works of providence. This is what we see in the second half of this of the, of the passage here. And Jeff quoted this for us last week where he, say, where he said, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all creatures and all their actions. And then the larger catechism, it helpfully adds the direction to which all things are being governed, and that is to his own glory, to God's own glory. The way that God preserves and governs all things, it serves his glory, right? And one of the things that consists in his glory, though, listen to this, is his faithfulness, right, to his promise to us, to be a blessing to the nations, to bless his people, the ones who he has entered into covenant with, the ones who he has given the good news to, uh, to pro- profess and proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
And so the Lord, you know, he promises to bless, uh, to bless us, and that always results in our inward transformation because that is our most dire need. But listen, the Lord also delights to bless us in this way. He is happy to do so. So, therefore, there is comfort in knowing that the Lord is governing all of our actions and in the, fa- in the fact that he is going to accomplish and apply all the benefits of redemption to us. And that God displays then his almighty power by also working through our sin to accomplish good. In order for this doctrine of providence to be a comfort to us, we must, always, we must trust and we must know that God is good at all times, right? He never changes. He never stops seeking after the good of his people. Psalm 1968 says, You are good and you do good. And Psalm 25, 8 and 9 shows how the Lord um, actually sh- uh, shows his goodness, and that is by doing this. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways, and he guides, um, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. And so it is important to understand, too, that as the Lord is governing all things, that he, he doesn't coerce us or strong-arm us into doing his will. But he has created us as free creatures, free to make decisions. Right? But what he does enable us to do is move according to our desires to accomplish the plan that he has. And Paul gets at this deep mystery in um, Acts seventeen twenty-eight, where he says, uh, In the Lord we live and move and have our being. We cannot do so much as move without the Lord enabling us to do so. But here is why we need that inward transformation, right? We know our natural desires are corrupted by sin. We need to be given a new nature for this to change. And this change occurs in salvation. This inward transformation that the Lord reaches in with the Holy Spirit into our hearts. He softens them. He, he infuses new qualities into our will, as it says in, in the canons of door. He, he, he enables us to move towards him. Yet even after this new nature is given, we still struggle with the pull and the enticement that sin brings, right? So we need to learn to hate our sin, to mourn after the nasty effects that it has and how easily attracted we are to it. That is why sometimes puzzling providences meet us in this life. But the inward transformation to us, it does come at a cost, right? First, it costs Jesus Christ his life. And then it costs us ours. But the paradoxical promise here is that by losing our life for his sake, we will find life in him. It's Matthew 16, 25. And so maybe you're wondering, dude, what, what, do you, like, what is going on here with Jacob, Lee, and Rachel? How does this all come together? Um, well, first, through understanding God's providence, we are better equipped to understand that the Lord is, uh, is capable of bringing blessing out of such puzzling events. And so what we witness, though, is Jacob lack this trust as he awakes and discovers that he is, he is married to Leah. That's, that's not part of his plan, right? His plan is to marry Rachel. Where is the Lord who promised to be with him and to bless him during this time? How could he let this happen? Aren't these the same questions that you wrestle with when your life isn't going the way that you have planned? And so in this moment, we see Jacob respond in a way, um, in a way that is rash. What do I mean by that? Well, how do we see that? Well, you see, what he does is he takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't go and confront the Lord crying out, laying out his grief and his sorrow and his frustration and his confusion. But instead, what he does 
is he immediately goes to his uncle Laban. And he says, how could you do this to me? Right? And he seeks to get what it is that he came for. Rachel. And so the two options that we typically have when our world falls apart or when tragedy strikes is we can either wait patiently on the Lord, trusting that he is in control, or we act rashly out of self-interest. I know we've, we've all done the latter for sure. And so it is actually in this moment, too, that we see Jacob is the one to blame for his polygamous marriage. And, and the, the burden of blame doesn't all fall on Laban. Even though Laban had a role to play, Jacob doesn't wait patiently. He, he doesn't seek the Lord for guidance. He goes and gets what he wants. He wastes no time in casting Leah aside and entering into another deal for Rachel. We, do, do we see the, the effects that sometimes are, are rash actions in, in seeking after our own desires cause? The, these two men, Laban and Jacob, they have no care no care for the emotional trauma and, and damage that this is going to cause to these two women. They're only seeking after themselves. And how often do we do the same thing? You see, when we let our fear and doubt-controlled desires lead us away from trusting the Lord's providence and, and seeking to obtain uh, His blessings, we, we reap destruction. Because we're sowing to please our own flesh. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians 6, 7-9. And so have you, maybe you ever thought that what's going on alongside um, Laban's deception of, of Jacob is the Lord saying, hey, this is the wife I have planned for you. You see, have you ever thought maybe if Jacob had actually been earnestly seeking the Lord's guidance for his wife, he would have been able to recognize the beauty of, of, of Leah rather than it being overshadowed by the physical beauty of Rachel, that she was actually the better candidate for marriage than for uh, than, than Rachel was. But how many times have you been afraid to actually pray for something because you don't want to know what the right answer is. You really just want what you want. And you'll deal with the consequences later. So why does the Lord allow Laban to deceive Jacob, though? If the Lord is in control of all things, why would he allow this to happen? And, and that's, really hard. that's a really hard question, right? Those are questions that we ask and wrestle with all the time. One of the things that we can think about that is true is that in order for us to, to learn to hate our sin, we do need to feel the sting and experience the consequences in that in the hand of the Lord, this is a loving rebuke. So it's a consequence actually of having his, of, of his promise to be with us as he works and roots out within us our delight and desire after sin. So the purpose here that we read is, is to humble Jacob. To lead him away from trusting in his own strength and cunning. And um, to lead him to trust in the Lord. And that's actually a deep blessing. Psalm 84.12 actually gets at this where it says, uh, O Lord God Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The Lord here is even working blessing in Jacob. And he does the same thing with us as we experience and face the consequences of our sinful decisions. So the Lord is capable, bringing, uh, capable of bringing blessing out of this uh, marriage between Leah and Jacob because the Lord promises that he will satisfy our desires with good things. And if he, if, he wasn't able to, or if he wasn't able to do that, he wouldn't promise these things and he wouldn't have allowed these events to take place. But it takes time to recognize 
the Lord satisfying our desires, right, with good things. Because we often have a misunderstanding of what those good things are. We, we often are, are looking to uh, material blessings or physical blessings to be the sign that the Lord is good to us. Rather than taking the time to look and see how it is he has transformed us and formed us and shaped us throughout our life. And so, when you face these puzzling providences of God, what is, what is it that you react? Or how is it that you react? Do you, do you adopt that posture of humility? Seeking the Lord, trusting in His plan to care uh, for you and His almighty power to redeem? This is in, intensely hard. Trust in the midst of tragedy is extremely difficult, right? And Psalm 27, 14 actually gets at that, where it says... Uh, will wait patient or wait patiently on the Lord be brave and courageous yet wait yes wait patiently on the Lord be brave and courageous that 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 language is talking about you know it's going to be tough right waiting for the Lord is difficult because we we still suffer the effects of um, our fallen flesh pulling at us and we want immediate gratification we don't want to grow really spiritually but the Lord is good to us and he gives us exactly what we need. And so prayer and patience are key for our growing trust in the Lord and key for displaying our trust in the Lord. But, but what happens when we fail to do this? You see, Jacob acted rashly. He enters into this political marriage, or polygamous marriage. Can the Lord actually bring blessing out of this? Can he bring blessing when we fail and fall and, and let our own desires get the best of us? Well, actually, what we see, if we look further down the story, is that, yes, he can. And not only can he, but he promises to. He does. So if you... Um, Look with me to Genesis 32, 9 through 12. We actually get a picture of the Lord working this blessing in, um, into Jacob. Because, listen, this is the first place where Jacob actually prays. It's after he's, been, he's left, he's fleed from Laban. And um, if you would, and, and we see this inward transformation that the Lord has worked in him. So look with me to uh, Genesis 32, 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of all the least, uh, of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. There in verse 11, we see Jacob brings his fear to the Lord. And not only that, he trusts in the Lord, right? He says, you have said, I will surely do you good. And you know what? You have shown me this goodness and I trust in that. The Lord works this goodness within him. And and the promise that the Lord will do uh, you good is the same promise that we have in Jesus Christ. And how does the Lord show his goodness to us? Well, he works holiness in us, the, the very thing that we need. Because without holiness, we will not see the Lord. But even more so, the inward transformation here is not the end of God's blessing to Jacob. Because out of this polygamous marriage, the nation of Israel is born. 
This is God's chosen people. And from this nation, from the line of Judah, Leah's son, mind you, will come the one who will accomplish the Lord God's plan of redemption and bring blessing to all the nations, the Lord God incarnate, Jesus Christ, our King. And it is in his life here on earth that he brings his fears to the Father. We get to see this in the Garden of Gethsemane specifically. And he displays this perfect trust in God's providence at all times, knowing that he promises to satisfy our desires with good things. He doesn't fall to Satan's temptation to say, bow to me and I'll give you everything that you desire. He puts his trust in the Lord. And the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, would display this trust too as he walked confidently to the cross for the joy that was set before him, to give his life as a ransom for many, to take on our punishment and die our death. And yet, while that is tragic, tragedy does not have the final say because it cannot have the final say in the Lord God's creation and providence because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, accomplishing all that he had come to accomplish. And through his resurrection and his ascension, he pours out the promised blessings upon us. Forgiveness of sins, the healing of all our corruptions, redemption of our life from the pit, crowning us with steadfast love and mercy and the satisfaction of all our desires, which is found in the abundant life with the Lord as our God. Therefore, friends, let not your hearts be troubled when you are faced with these puzzling providences or or you fear that the Lord will not be good to you. Take your fears and doubts to him. Dig up the treasures of the gospel that are laid up for you in this wonderful gift. He is trustworthy and he promises to satisfy your desire with good things. Know that he delights to bless you. He delights to forgive your sin. He delights in your bringing your fears and doubts, your sin before him, confessing, because there he pours out the goodness of his grace upon us. Because when we ask for our forgiveness, we get to look to the cross. We get to know that Christ, there Christ's blood was shed for us. And through his resurrection and ascension, his forgiveness is ours. Know that the Lord delights to bless you. With that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the almighty God, the one who, who has chosen to bless us. Um, and yet this blessing is one that is worked out, not so much in, in material possessions, Lord, but in what we desperately need, a new heart, a new mind. Uh, we need holiness worked in us. And Father, we praise you and thank you that you delight to do that. You delight to pour out your, uh, the abundance of your love upon us. So Father, um, as we go forward uh, this week, remind us of this good and wonderful truth. Help us to take our fears and doubts before you, to trust you in prayer, and to experience the, uh, the abundance of your love for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. I pray. Amen.